You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Uh, ben, it, it turned out to be a kind of a crazy weekend in combat sports. On the surface, heading into it, it looked like maybe it was going to be a bit of a low-profile affair, I guess. The UFC had a very, very low wattage fight night scheduled. Bellator had back-to-back events scheduled, but kind of appeared to have shot its biggest bullet with Antonio or AJ McKee versus Pitbull the weekend before. Uh, PFL was back, but frankly was not getting a ton of pre-fight love. And then, of course, you had Tyson Fury over there in boxing, fighting a relatively low-profile opponent in Dylan White. Uh, As it turned out, though, kind of a bunch of crazy shit happened. And in response, we're going to get a little crazy on the proper this week. We're going to do away with our normal three-round format, and we're going to have more of a freewheeling discussion about the biggest happenings of the weekend. We're going to plow through as much of it as we can, uh, using some good listener mail questions that we got along the way. It's going to be a wild ride, man. Uh, If there's anything we don't get to, we'll probably roll it over into our Patreon content for the rest of the week. First, though, man, you're all up in the Gawker.com today over there writing about about Mike Tyson. Uh, Tell the kids at home all about it. Well, you didn't think Mike Tyson was going to haul off and punch somebody on an airplane, and I wouldn't have something to say about it. We we discussed it a little bit, but our our offerings were muted last week uh, over on the Patreon. Didn't get to as much as we normally do. And, you know, we have observed before, people act weird around Mike Tyson. You know, it, ongoing. It's a situation, it seems, that Mike Tyson, when he goes out into the world and is out there doing stuff, people are weird to Mike Tyson and about Mike Tyson. And combat sports in particular, people are weird about Mike Tyson. And so I wrote, you know, a little, just a 1,500-word essay about the bizarre and pretty unusual cultural space that Mike Tyson occupies at this point. Because everybody knows Mike Tyson. Everybody. Even people who don't follow boxing at all. Everybody knows fucking Mike Tyson. I mentioned an anecdote in the essay about teaching a group of Chinese uh, college exchange students uh, a, a seminar on American sports culture, and they didn't know anything about. Like, I showed them the biggest sports stars of the moment, and they had no idea who they were. And then I showed them Mike Tyson, and they were like, "Oh yeah, the guy from The Hangover." That uh, no, they know that guy. And so at this point, where Mike Tyson is kind of famous for being Mike Tyson, and yet also people are going to see Mike Tyson on an airplane and some. Jack of Napes is going to get it into his head that the thing to do is to go over there and fuck with Mike Tyson. And uh, it's to me, it would seem exhausting to walk around in the world being Mike Tyson. And yet the entire life of Mike Tyson has been a strange, unusual and just a ride with a lot of huge ups and downs, uh, which I think makes him such a, a fascinating figure to a lot of people. And it's also weird to me. 
I remember being a kid in the 80s and 90s, sort of browning into consciousness and to sports culture in general. And one of the first things I sort of being aware of was the phenomenon of Mike Tyson as he rose up through the boxing ranks. I remember hearing about him. People were excited about Mike Tyson. I remember trying to get my dad to order Mike Tyson fights, and he'd be like, no, it's going to be over in 30 seconds. It's not worth it. But I also remember he was like the first big sports star that I recall to get his name all up on the video game. I mean, we all remember playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, do we not? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, that became just a thing that everybody was doing. You know, it was like, fuck it, Buster Douglas had like a video game there for a little while. You know, Vander Holyfield had a video game. You know, all these other sports stars, Ken Griffey Jr.'s baseball, all this stuff comes after that. But Mike Tyson, as I recall, was the first one where it was like a bunch of kids who weren't capable of watching Mike Tyson fights in real life, very knew very little about what was going on in Mike Tyson's actual life and career, but were out there on the video game uh, spending an entire weekend trying to work their way up to fight Mike Tyson, who would inevitably knock them out with like two punches. Yeah. So this video has been out for the better part of a week now. Mike Tyson, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, regulating uh, on an airplane uh, uh, on a guy who's like been messing with him, has been antagonizing, has been fucking with him, you know, poking the bear, so to speak. And I got to say, man, we I've witnessed firsthand regular dudes literally trying to pick fights at the bars with professional MMA fighters. I've been yeah. around for some of that. I've seen it happening. It blows my mind every single time. I find there to be something... I don't know what the the best way to describe it, particularly disheartening, maybe, that you can be Mike fucking Tyson and someone <laughs> will still just fuck with you for no reason, man. I guess, number one, who does that? Who fucks with Mike Tyson? And number two, like, there, that's just like a sad commentary on, on the human condition, right? That like, yeah. Mike yeah. Tyson is not famous for being a nice dude. Right. Like he has yeah. matured into this kind of like elder statesman that is regarded with uh, some respect and uh, seems to have this sort of like lust for life now as a middle aged guy. But like the reason that you know who that guy is, is that he's not friendly. That's not why he's famous. Like he is mm -hmm. literally famous for knocking people the fuck out. And you're going to sit on an airplane with him and like needle him until he f punches you. Really? Yeah, I mean, that's also the thing is that I'm not saying there are any situations in which I would mess with Mike Tyson or that I would suggest that there are situations in which other people should mess with Mike Tyson. But one of the situations that you should absolutely not mess with Mike Tyson in is when you are both sealed in a metal tube together and there ain't nowhere to go. Like if you if. God forbid you decide you absolutely must mess with Mike Tyson. Do it in an open field, man. Do it in an open field where you got on your, your New Balance running shoes and he's wearing a cheap pair of flip-flops. Give yourself a chance to get away from it if, if the wrath should descend upon you inevitably. Don't, don't go when we're both sort of captives in this small space and decide that's when you want to fuck with Mike Tyson because he is not going to have a hard time finding you. I would do it from behind a plexiglass window or like a, uh, like one of those uh, invisible force fields that you see yeah. in sci-fi movies. That's mm -hmm. the only circumstance that I would even consider doing it. I would do it 
as I was blasting off into space on an exploration mission, uh, like like on some interstellar shit, where by the time I come back, if I come back, I'll be more or less the same age, and everyone on Earth will have aged like sixty years. Even then, I'll feel a little weird about it. But I like as my last act, as they're powering up the engines, I'm gonna like roll down the window and be like, "Fuck you, Mike." And then just roll it right back up and be like, okay, go, go, go. Even then, I feel a little dicey about it, you know? Reminder, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. Don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME if you nasty. And like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash co-main event. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. And if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely Need to check out what's going on over at the Patreon page. Ben Folks and I are over there with three additional podcasts every single week. We've got the Wednesday live chat, Thursday's doing the damn thing, Friday's power hour. It's basically a nonstop party lifestyle. It's a bunch of podcasts and a bunch of other perks. Get get access to the unofficial CME message board where the uh, the beloved patrons are constantly over there just chopping it up. Get access to the CME's communal scorpion bolo tie, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, This year, we got the CME's 10-year anniversary meetup coming up in Las Vegas in July. That event is essentially sold out at this point, but you never know when we might do something like that again. The point is, join us over on Patreon, get a ton of extra content, and get yourself surrounded by the coolest, most fun, most all-inclusive welcoming community in all of MMA, hands fucking down. Check us out over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. You working on your base tan for that trip to Vegas, by the way? I, you don't I, want to roll up in there without a, without a little bit of a base tan because you will scorch. I've seen you. Yeah, I better get started, man. I better uh, I better hit up the, the tanning booth, if nothing else. Uh, so we, we're going to talk a lot of boxing, I guess, to begin this show. Not that we necessarily, necessarily planned on it, uh, Ben, but Francis Ngannou crashed the party this weekend over there in the UK, uh, showing up in the ring after Tyson Fury had defeated Dylan White, I believe by six-round KO. I didn't watch that fight, but it seemed like uh, Fury pretty much smoked him. And then, you know, lo and behold, here comes Big Fran into the ring, and these two guys at least appear to be serious about fighting each other in 2023 after Ngannou gets free of his UFC deal. And there's, frankly, a lot to unpack about it. Uh, Let's start here. Ben, how do you feel if you're the UFC? And you see Francis Ngannou in the ring after the biggest combat sports event of the weekend. And he's in there talking about fighting Tyson Fury. If you're the UFC, do you start to feel like maybe you fucked up a little bit here? Are you a little bit just like, you know, we're not used to feeling like we're wrong, but maybe we fucked up a little bit here. The thing that would make me a little nervous or at least make me willing to reconsider my previous position if I were the UFC is not just that Francis Ngannou was there talking about Tyson Fury, but that Tyson Fury is there talking about fighting Francis Ngannou and is excited about it. Is yeah. saying, you know, hey, I, I'm looking to get out of boxing, but I would do this. I would do this like a, a, a kind of a special attraction sort of thing with Francis Ngannou, this clash of the titans. And smart enough to see that there's there's business they could do together and that it, it it would be smart business for him. Tyson Fury, I'm sure, looks at it and thinks, I can beat this guy pretty easy 
because he's not a boxer. He is a he is a good boxer for MMA, but he is not a good he you know he can't hang with the boxers over here. Regardless of whether that's true, I'm sure that's part of his calculations. And also, he will help bring an audience that maybe does not normally watch my fights. And I will still bring my existing audience. And so together, we will do some big numbers and make a bunch of money. And it'll be an easy win for me. Uh, and it'll just be a, a fun, cool new thing that's happening. So I, I, I'm i sure that that's part of his calculation. But the thing that has been a, a roadblock before is UFC champions love to talk about fighting boxers because of the payday. Because the, just the massive paydays that the fighters actually get to keep. Uh, so much of the money over in boxing as opposed to in the UFC. The difficult thing is getting the boxers to talk back to them in a serious way, in a more than just cheap grab for headlines kind of way, in a let's get something on the books sort of way. And you already have sort of a roadmap for how a UFC fighter, even one dealing with some contract situation, could put pressure on the UFC. Uh, Conor McGregor did it. That's how we got serious about the Floyd Mayweather talks is if you just go get yourself a boxing license, you don't even have to to have a boxing match yet. Just go get yourself a professional boxing license and then say, I'm a boxer now. And if the UFC wants to say that the terms of its contract stop me from being able to go participate in a boxing match with this man, then the Muhammad Ali Act comes into effect because it regulates professional boxing in the United States. And it's the thing the UFC has tried to avoid being having it applied to MMA. It, it's a, it would really go against a lot of the stuff that has made the UFC's business model work so well for it. And it only applies to boxers right now. But if he becomes a boxer, wants to participate in a boxing match, now the Ali Act probably applies. Again, the UFC could just say, hey, we're going to tie you up in court for a long time, the same way promoters in both those sports like to do whenever they have issues with fighters and think eventually you're going to decide your prime is wasting away and you're not making any money and you'll you'll cut a deal with us. But it's a way to put pressure on the UFC and make them think, okay, wouldn't it be smarter to to wet our beaks in this rather than to just plant our feet and say, absolutely not. Because Francis Ngannou, I believe he was on the Fortnite today with Ariel Hawani yeah. saying, if the UFC wants to talk about a new contract with me, a Tyson Fury fight has to be part of those negotiations. Like, giving me permission to go do this boxing match has to be a part of those negotiations. And I got to think that the parent company Endeavor at some point has got to get in the UFC's ear and be like, look, are you saying that you do not want us to make a piece of the millions of dollars that this fight will generate, that you don't think it would be a good idea for us to just do nothing except say yes and maybe send Dana White to the press conference to uh, introduce Francis a couple times and in exchange get millions of dollars. You don't want to do that because we like money and we would very much like to do that. And I, I think that that does change the calculus a whole lot. Like once you get that interest coming back from Tyson Fury and once we're on in the ring we, with the cameras on talking about it, then it starts to get real. Yeah, I hear all that. And you're right. Francis Ngannou was on the Fortnite today. He's saying that, that, you know, he's still out recovering from his knee surgery, but he says he could potentially return in November or December. Uh, he says, this is a quote, the Tyson Fury fight has to be part of the discussion. That's not an option. It has to be uh, part of the discussion. He also says he doesn't want it to be his last fight. He says, I want to keep fighting after Tyson Fury. There's still a lot of fights out there. There's still John Jones. There's a steep A trilogy. There's still big fights I can do in the UFC. And I'd really like that to happen. I guess 
My question about this whole thing is, though, that we think Francis Ngannou will be free from his UFC contract in January 2023, no matter what happens. So does Francis Ngannou have any good reason to re-sign with the UFC now? Like, would he have any good reason at all to share the profit of a potential fight with Tyson Fury with the UFC? Like, if he's out there with Tyson Fury anyway, and the fight appears to be on anyway, why cut the UFC in on it at all? It seems to me like the UFC might have already screwed this thing up, man. Like, they and Francis Ngannou have not had a good relationship, and I don't think Francis Ngannou feels all that uh, hospitable toward them at this point. And I think you can understand why he wouldn't. So like, if you're Francis Ngannou, unless you really truly want to remain an MMA fighter and stick around and fight more fights in the UFC, I guess to secure your legacy as an MMA fighter, why would you do it? Why would you even talk with them? Why would you cut them in on this at all? Why wouldn't you just be, why wouldn't you yell out the spaceship (laughs) <laughs> like Ben Folks is going to do to Mike Tyson. Why wouldn't you stick your head out of the spaceship and be like, fuck you, Dana? Peace. Like as the thing flies off into the sky, why would you stick around at all? Well, I mean, maybe one of those uh, presumptions that we're building this on is that it really is that simple that you just wait till the end of the calendar year and you're you're free and clear. And I don't know if that is exactly what the situation is. And I, I would wonder... If there's anybody who knows right now it, that it's actually going to be that clean a break, like I don't know exactly what the the contractual language would say there, and so maybe that's one motivation is to be like, I whether rather than wind up arguing with these people indefinitely about it, let's make a deal that works for everybody. The other part of it is, what do you do after Tyson Fury knocks you out? Are uh, you, you just you go home and sit on your forty five million dollars? That I saw okay. Dan Raphael, noted boxing writer, longtime boxing writer on Twitter this weekend. First of all, ballparking the spelling on Ngannou, just like yes. <laughs> tweeting. And I'm like, Dan, you're you know tweeting. who I'm talking about. Yeah, you're tweeting right now. So I know you've got the Internet <laughs> like you could check the spelling doesn't even just ballparks it on Ngannou. But he was saying Tyson Fury could make 90 million dollars to fight Francis Ngannou. And actually, I do want to. Real quick here, read this uh, question that we got from Tom Hughes. Uh, he says, Tyson Fury won his most recent uh, knockout in front of 94,000 fans in Wembley Stadium. Uh, Frank Warren has made an unprecedented 32 million pound purse bid in order to promote that fight with Fury, earning over 20 million pounds as his challenger over 5 million pounds. Uh, post-fight, Francis Ngannou was in the ring and interviewed people alongside, or interviewed alongside Fury, and both men seemed interested at fighting. Uh, there's a lot of people who even now are are questioning whether or not Tyson Fury is serious about this or whether or not he's just using Ngannou essentially to earn more money in, in negotiating for future boxing fights. I think he's absolutely serious. And I don't yeah. understand why he wouldn't be serious if Dan Raphael is out here saying he could make $90 million to take what I'm sure in Tyson Fury's mind is the easiest fight out there against yeah. Francis Ngannou. And if Francis Ngannou makes half that, Hell, if Francis Ngannou only makes Dylan White money, if he makes five million pounds, it's absolutely worth him worth it for him to do that. It's absolutely worth it for him to split with the UFC at almost any cost if he can make that kind of money. And like if he does, he never has to fight again unless he, like I said, he really, really wants to. 
Yeah, I mean, I would think that that's not what he is angling for, is let me get one last heist, one big payday, and then spend the rest of my life spending as uh, Ordell would say in in Jackie Brown. I don't know if that's what he is looking for. Is it just like, let me get just one big one and then peace. I think that he does want to continue having a career as a fighter in some regard. So that would be one motivation that if if he realizes like, okay, I could go do this boxing match. It could just be a one-off win or lose. Who cares? And then still be the UFC heavyweight champion and come back and do some of these other big fights. Uh, back home where I'm more comfortable, and then that's my career. And, like, it's easy for us to say, hey, this amount of money should be enough, just do that, and then never do anything else again. So few people seem to do that, even when they get that big amount of money. It's easy for us to just be like, that's enough money, you can just stop there, and don't worry about it, fade off into retirement at 30 something years of age and and we'll never think about you again it's a lot harder for people to actually choose that option even when they have it so i don't think that that's what he's looking to do as uh, much as, as dana white has talked in the past about francis Ngano having quote unquote bad representation like even if this fight doesn't go off first of all if the fight does go off and you're markel martin and you got francis Ngano a boxing match with the world's heavyweight champion uh, you are the greatest MMA manager who has ever lived. It'd be up, it'd be up there with you and Adi Attar, right? As how much money did you get for your clients? Yeah. So, but even if it doesn't come off, for quote unquote bad representation, Francis Ngannou is the only MMA fighter who's showing up in high profile situations wearing his sponsor t-shirt for Gymshark this weekend. I think they're doing a, an amazing job with this well, guy. Like nobody else is getting any money at all. And Francis Ngannou is out here with his luxury watches and his Gymshark t-shirt talking about fighting Tyson Fury and what would be the biggest combat sports event of that year. But Case closed. You know what Dana White really means when he says bad representation. He means difficult. Difficult yeah. for me. Difficult for the UFC to work with because the guy is looking out for the best interests of his client. He's not working with us, the UFC, the way guys like Ali Abdelaziz will come straight out and tell you they are doing. He is looking out for his guy. He is doing what the manager is supposed to be doing. And frankly, I think at this point, the UFC is just so unaccustomed to that. Yeah, It is so rare that uh, big time MMA fighters have that kind of representation and they are just not used to dealing with it. And and also, even if they are used to dealing with it, it's just the, it's the Dana White playbook, man. He looks at it. You're having a hard time negotiating with a guy. One thing, say he doesn't want to fight. Another thing, uh, bad representation. His manager's a dick. The manager's stupid. Going to talk his guy out of a whole bunch of money. Really, all he should be doing is picking up the phone and say yes whenever we call. Guy's not doing that. Therefore, he's a bad manager. You know what I actually think is hilarious is that Francis Ngannou is right now doing the very thing that all of the UFC fighter pay apologists on Twitter constantly say that fighters should do. Like if you ever bring up fighter pay, someone will come on there and be like, oh, he signed a contract. He's yep. Like, okay, he, you know what? Francis Ngannou didn't like his contract. So he fought it out. He tried to renegotiate it. And if he doesn't like the terms that he's offered, he's going to go do something else. That's exactly what all those guys say fighters should it's do. Exactly anything. what they say. Don't those sign the contract guys, if you don't like it. Yeah. Those guys, those guys on Twitter must be fucking overjoyed. They mm-hmm. must be like, finally, finally, somebody took our advice. Yeah. 
That's I'm sure that's what they're saying right now they're as overjoyed. we speak. Um, remember, everybody, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you once again by Fulton and Rourke. Our pals at Fulton and Rourke have been purveyors of the finest men's grooming products for years. And they're longtime supporters of the CME. We humbly ask you, the listener, to support the people who support the CME. Uh, one thing we need to tell you about this stuff is how long these Fulton and Rourke products last. Like we fully recognize that you can go out and get bar soaps and body wash for much cheaper than what you can get over at Fulton and Rourke. But in addition to using the best ingredients they can they can find for your healthy skin, Fulton and Rourke bar soap and body wash and the fragrances, number one, are all formulated to last a long time. Number two, you can get them in just massive containers. Like, you'll look great, you'll smell great, and you'll be set for a long, long time. It's a damn investment in your personal grooming. How long, you ask? Well, if you go out and you buy the 33-ounce bottle of Fulton & Rourke shampoo and body wash, by the time you use that fucker, man, I swear, Kamza Chamayev will probably already be the former champion. That's yep. how long it's going to take you to, to get through this big-ass bottle of Fulton & Rourke shampoo and body wash. Tons of cool stuff going on at Fulton & Rourke right now. If you want to check it out for yourself, CME listeners can save 15% on their first purchase with the coupon code IFYOUNASTY. That's all one word, IFYOUNASTY, at FultonAndRourke.com. Um, also, are you... There's another part to this question from Tom Hughes that you did not read. Oh, yeah. No, I assume we're going to go ahead. We don't have a, a, a formal, are you fucking kidding me, scheduled for today's <laughs> co-main event podcast. But uh, I think I speak for both of us when I say we can probably go ahead and, and do a joint, are you fucking kidding me, about Tyson Fury asking Francis Ngannou about his penis uh, yep. during their live interview in the ring. Now... The way he phrased it was, it, it sounded to me like what he's saying there, Chad, is, do you have a big Corey? Who knows what kind of uh, slang Tyson Fury is using out there. I didn't know what he was saying. Francis Ngannou didn't know what he was saying. Uh, but that seemed to be the gist of it. I'm going to do this with my hands to denote the seriousness of what I'm about to say. Is this a thing that British people know about, or are we still out here in the 21st goddamn century coming up with new slang terms for dick? Because we, we, I feel like we got it covered, man. I feel like we got enough terms. Yeah. And if that's what you want to ask the man, we'll get to the propriety of that in a moment, I imagine. But if that's what you want to ask the man, you know, like uh, kind of the, the, what are likely to be the more instantly recognizable terms? Why would you choose that term? Especially, you end up having to do hand gestures in order for him to get it. And then the face that Francis Ngannou makes when he does realize what Tyson Fury is asking him, it's like, he's not mad, he's just disappointed. Yeah, he, I mean, he's he just wants everyone to know that that's crass, right? Yes! Like, Francis <laughs> yes. Ngannou, classy dude, he just like, he just shakes his head like, Oh, that's crass, Mr. Fury. That's, yeah. that's that's crass right there. And yet, in and I thought about it afterwards in retrospect, and I was like, you know what? Honestly, it was inevitable that Tyson Fury would ask this. 
That there was no way, especially if we actually booked a fight between the two of them. And uh, we had to do media and uh, them standing across from each other talking and, and, you know, maybe doing a little press tour like Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor did. There was no way he wasn't eventually going to to bring this topic up. It's just if you've been paying attention to Tyson Fury, we were eventually going to get there. We were eventually going to get to some Corey discourse. And so maybe it's good that we just got it out of the way. Francis Ngannou can make his like disappointed in you face and then we can move the fuck on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh, I mean, I hope we got it out of the way. I hope it wasn't a preview <laughs> of how we plan to build this fight. Because, like, as you just said, man, we already did Mayweather and McGregor one time. Like, yeah, we we don't need to do it again. We don't need to. Uh, we don't need to go down that that road again. Frankly, it's uh, you know, it's crass, sir. It's crass, Mister Fury. Yeah, it really is. All right, let's talk some actual MMA stuff this week here, Ben Jessica Andraj. Uh, went out there this weekend and frankly just reminded us all who the fuck she is yeah. in the main event of this UFC fight night event. Amanda Lemos came in uh, with five straight wins. And for a couple of minutes there, it looked like she was going to be a problem just with the power in her strikes, uh, landing some leg kicks, the, the winging some heavy punches. And then they got in a clinch situation and Andrade damn near put her to sleep with the first ever standing arm triangle finish in UFC history as the CME's resident jujitsu nerd, Ben, I got to just let you talk about, I just got to get out of the way and let you talk about this one standing arm triangle finish in 2022 in the UFC. Now, you know that I love the arm triangle. You know that I have, of course we all know that in my, uh, Grappling days, the arm triangle was one of my favorites, especially in no-gi grappling, just because it, it slides on pretty easily. There are a lot of opportunities, if you are if you are looking for it, that you can start to nab one of those and start to work toward one of those. It's a really low-risk one to go for because it doesn't require you to sacrifice position. If, if you're good at it and you're used to doing it, it doesn't risk burning out your arms going for something that's not there. You're not going to wear yourself out trying to finish with it. And it forces the other person to basically stop what they're doing and respect it and deal with that situation before they can do anything else. And yet, it's tough to finish from a standing position. I think we've seen... I remember Matt Riddle, and he gets somebody with it, and he he took them down to finish it, uh, but like he locked it on standing. We've seen a couple of people get to that position from standing. And if you can do that, if you can finish it standing and you know you have that in your arsenal, that's a... a Difficult thing for people to incorporate into worrying about if they're in close quarters fighting with you yeah. is that because it's you get used to it in grappling where you start to realize like, okay, here are the situations that people start to try to set up an arm triangle choke. And one of the downsides of the arm triangle is that it's not always super subtle when you start going for you, you put your head there trying to get behind their shoulder like that and, and wrapping your arm around the neck on the far side. They know. They know what you're thinking. And it also is one of those submissions that if you start your defense early enough, you you know, you get your your kind of early warning system working well enough, you ought to be able to deal with it. And yet if you can start locking it on from positions like that where people aren't expecting it, then it just takes that extra half a second before they are aware of what's happening and it might already be too late. But you gotta be strong to finish that choke from there. 
and I I love it. I love seeing people find new ways to apply that shit because that is one of my favorites. Jessica Andrade is only thirty at this point. Um, she gets how is that possible? It's, it seems uh, crazy that she's got a lot, so much life left in this sport if she wants it. She's three and one now in her last four, though the loss is when she moved up to flyweight and fought Valentina Shevchenko uh, for the title there. Obviously, the losses in big fights, most notably to Joanna Jacek and Zhang Wiley and Rose Namajunas, maybe dominate some of the thinking when it comes to Andrade. And maybe we have a tendency to kind of overlook her a little bit. A little bit. Uh, but this is a person who can still very much be a player at 115 uh, pounds, you know, both in the near and, and like the far term, frankly, if she wants to be like, she's to me, you know, even though this was sort of like a low profile UFC fight night main event, like she kind of went out there and planted her flag as a person who is dangerous in a lot of different ways. And a person who is going to be around for a while in this division. Now, when you're looking at somebody where you're like, okay, you got a loss to, to Zhang Wiley. You got, you know, the, you knocked out Rose Amuse with the slam, uh, but then lost the follow-up. And frankly, it was looking like even the one that you lost with the slam wasn't going great for you right off the bat. If you were looking at her and being like, okay, this is where we want to stay and, and make a run at things, what would you tell her to do? What's the piece that, that's missing what what would be the advice of like here's how we're gonna fix that that one little, tiny little hole in your game and then it's just bombs away from there. Right. It's tough because of those losses. She seems like a person who is gonna have to kind of give promoters no other option but to yeah. give her those opportunities again. Uh, but frankly, I think the advice would be to go out and do exactly what you did this weekend because Amanda Lamosh came into this thing. I believe a winner of five straight fights. And so, you know, when you get booked in a UFC main event against a, an up and coming contender who is on that kind of role, it's possible matchmakers didn't think you were going to win if you were Jessica Andrade and to kind of just keep turning away the best they have is, is maybe the best strategy you could, you could make to, to get yourself back into a title opportunity. So basically become inevitable. I would say you, you, you. Okay. All right. I want to read this question from the great Southern MMA fan that came in. He wrote, Jessica Andrade can reasonably finish anyone across all three women's divisions. 145 doesn't count. Uh, she's a legit boogie woman. It's frustrating to see the UFC's promotion machine not promote. Why isn't she a bigger star? Lack of English, her stature, or the size of women's MMA in general? Curious to hear your thoughts. Um... Uh, I mean, uh, I guess my initial answer to this question, not that it would surprise anybody, is that we've kind of seen what the UFC, if given its choice, likes to promote in terms yeah. of what it, what it wants to make, uh, you know, star material in women's MMA. And Jessica Andrade doesn't really fit that profile, which is a huge shame. And we've talked about it a lot before, especially in the case of someone uh, like Amanda Nunes. Right. Because I think that there are a lot of untapped markets for the UFC. There are a lot of untapped demographics for the UFC to try to promote too. And up to this point, they just seem uninterested in doing it. So like, if you had to guess, it would be that, you know, Jessica Andrade 
isn't a white blonde lady uh, that the UFC feels like looks like a model. And so they want to make her, you know, a, a superstar. You could add on to that these high profile losses. I think that, you know, right. that doesn't that doesn't help. But like they did have her as champion for a while. And it kind of feels like kind of feels like and this is not exclusive to women's MMA. It covers the whole gamut of the sport, but it, it kind of feels like the UFC knows how to do one thing. They know how to promote in one kind of a way. And if you're not like right in the wheelhouse, they're just not going to, they're not going to do anything. They're not going to figure out a new way to promote you because frankly, that's almost not even the business that they're in anymore. Yeah. Like if you're not uh, presenting to them, this thing that is already easy and marketable to them, they're not going to figure out like a, uh, a personal Jessica Andrade marketing campaign strategy. Like they're just going to keep doing their thing. But don't you think they would also turn around and say, in response to a criticism like this, hey, we just put her in the main event. We had this fight night, and she was the, the spotlight. Jessica Andrade beating Amanda Lemos right there, the headliner. That's that's us promoting her. That's how you get promoted around here. We, we put her in the top spot, told everybody to come see this, and, uh, and, and she showed out, had a good performance. That That's it. That's what it looks like. That's what the promotion looks like. We put her in a fight. <laughs> we put her in the main event fight. But okay. yet, I mean, and in fairness, there were a lot of people beforehand. We were complaining. We were like, that's the main event? Right. Jessica Andrade versus Amanda Lemos? Like, okay. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's a bit of a two-way street there. Gave her a fight. Uh, <laughs> ben, if, if you were one of these gamblers who likes to chase the big money on, like, submission bets, you can always get the longest of odds betting on somebody to win by a sub by submission. If you're one of those gamblers, this was a good night for you on Saturday. You got four submission wins in five fights on the main card of this UFC fight night event, including the co-main and the main event. Uh, this crazy standing arm triangle choke from Jessica Andrade that we just talked about. Uh, but also a knee bar by Claudio, yeah. uh, Claudio Pugliese against uh, Clay Guida in the co-main event. And uh, this one was 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 pretty amazing. And just over, I think, about three minutes of fight time, Pouliez threatened Guida with a guillotine choke, an arm lock, an arm triangle, or I'm sorry, a triangle arm bar combination, an omoplata, and then finally locked up uh, his this knee bar for, get this, his third knee bar victory in the UFC, which is insane. We got this uh, question from Kylan Komal, who writes, did you see how fast Pouliez locked in that knee bar twice now on tough as rawhide guys in a row? Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, this is this is pretty amazing stuff from the 26-year-old jujitsu whiz here. Yeah, he beat uh, Chris Grutzmacher in uh, December with a knee bar. So that's two in a row. And you're right, that's three in his last five fights. So, you know, I love a specialist. Yeah, I especially do. love like a submission specialist who has... Like one main submission that they always go to. And I recognize that the ceiling for those people is typically a little bit limited. Like Ronda Rousey's the exception, really, right? Because Ronda Rousey had the arm bar as her thing and she's wrote it all the way to the UFC title and superstardom and still was arm barring people even when they 100% knew it was coming. But, you know, like 
like Husamar Palharas used to do with heel hooks and, and ankle locks and stuff like that. I love when somebody has a, like a submission that is their thing and that they keep getting it on people who should know to look out for it and definitely know how to defend against it and they still keep getting it. It's not a recipe for longevity or like great success over many, many years. It's probably not going to get you to a UFC title if you're most fighters, but I still love it when it happens. I love it yeah. when one of those people shows up. Well, I don't necessarily know if that is 100% going to be a limiting factor for Claudio Pumpulias. Like He's got some striking. He's not fully one-dimensional, and he's kind of amazing. Yeah. on the ground like to first of all knee bar a dude like clay guida who has been in this game so long is is impressive in and of itself but like i said just it was one submission after another when when they got down on the ground uh for this thing and i think that like a lot of people underestimate now how damn good you have to be to be able to do that against a person who is as veteran and studied as as Clay Guida, like to chain together that many kind of dangerous looking submission attempts is really a huge feat uh, against somebody who kn- who knows what you're up to and has the uh, the skill and athletic talent to d- avoid those submissions against 99.9% of the population. You know, it might also be worth mentioning here, uh, this I believe was the last fight on Clay Guida's current contract, right? He oh. talked about it a little bit going in here uh he's 40 years old he was saying you know he was on the last fight of the contract but wanted to show the ufc that he could still do it show fans he was still in it and he's been lately you know on the win one lose one kind of thing uh and frankly every time i remember clay guida is fighting i am surprised that clay guida is still at it uh and yet you know you can't go out there most of the time and be like clay guida looks bad or clay guida looks like he doesn't belong in there what do you think happened? Where, where does Clay Guida go from here? And please don't say bare knuckle FC. Well, say anything I, but that. I mean, the UFC is is pretty clearly divesting themselves of a bunch of these veteran contracts, right? Uh, and maybe we can talk about Ben Rothwell kind of toward the end of the show if we have uh, space and time for that, because he did, in fact, just sign with BKFC. Uh but you could understand if the UFC didn't want to really bring Clay Guida back, it would probably have to pay him more money than it would have to pay, you know, a lot of the people on the roster, especially, you know, bringing all these people in from the contender series now and stuff like that. Uh, I would love to think Guida could find a home in a place like Bellator or maybe, you know, catch on in a PFL season or something like that. I could see him being, uh, you know, kind of a desirable commodity for somebody like the PFL who who wants uh, to have some names in this in their seasons and and be able to book fights against guys who already are with fights guys that already have a profile like that. So uh, if he wants to keep going, I think there would be you know some kind of landing spot for Clay Guida. Heck, man, maybe even the one six five over there in uh, Eagle FC. Uh, but bare knuckle boxing wouldn't necessarily appear to befit his skill set. Yeah. Yeah, it just, you know, especially we've talked about how lately the UFC has so many different ways to lock down sort of entry-level talent and to lock it down at a time when it'll 
say yes to whatever deal the UFC is offering. And it's, you know, we're not letting tough die. We're continuing to, to keep that as a conveyor belt of talent and content. We've got the contender series, you know, we're over, we're even launching like tournaments now that are like road to the UFC. Like basically just like a, a whole other separate thing to do the same thing where you're all competing for the chance to sign a, a kind of a shitty contract that is probably going to be long-term uh, and lock somebody in for a long period of time. And then on the other side, you got guys who have been in there for a long time, who've got their money up and uh, with all the experience. And is the UFC looking at them and being like, mm, no, thanks. We, yeah. we see an end to your usefulness here. Yeah. Uh, I think that's sort of the name of the game right now for the UFC, just how uh, budget conscious it is and, and how the UFC's role at this point is to kind of uh, look good in the uh, the portfolio of the ownership group, right? To kind of like prop up Endeavor, pay off their loans, and and like make sure they look good for the IPO, stuff like that. So from a business standpoint, you can kind of understand why they would go about it that way. And frankly, like Claudio Pugliese is a good example of what a damn embarrassment of riches in young talent the UFC also has running around, like, uh, you also don't necessarily need to feel like you are married to a guy like Clay Guida when you got 26-year-old dudes like Claudio Puglios, who's this is his fifth straight win in the UFC at lightweight. And we talk a lot about how competitive and what a shark tank that division is. But I, I bet you could sit around and name 30 guys in the UFC lightweight division before you even got around to thinking of Claudio Puglios. And here he is, 26 years old, jiu-jitsu phenom, five wins in a row. Like any other promotion in the world would love to have that dude. And in the UFC, uh, he's just another guy. Shows yeah. up on a Saturday night, beats Clay Guida in a co-main event. Just another guy who's super good. Uh, I just mentioned the PFL and honestly, uh, pound for pound, the best fight of the weekend might might have might have been Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens. Hell uh, yeah, it was. In the debut of the new PFL season. Uh, they're fighting in the lightweight season. Uh, I mean, these two guys started throwing down from the word go, uh, essentially exactly the fight you expected and hoped to get from a couple of guys like this. In retrospect, I got to say, a uh, pretty crafty strategic move by PFL uh, to make this the main event of your season opener, wasn't it? Because they got a lot of play out of this. Yeah. You know what? We, I think uh, Clay Collard came to our attention here at the CME just because he was Cassius Clay Collard. Correct. And yeah. this was this was fucking years ago, man, where we were talking about him. And I believe you made the point that, you know, you're already immediately on board for any fighter whose name sounds like a late nineties ska band. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and then it turns out fucking Cassius Clay Collard is pretty awesome. Like, he goes and has himself a boxing career uh, when nobody's looking. And then he's back here in the PFL. And honestly, when you watch him, there's a certain, like, there's a not give a fuckness to his approach. And yet also there are flashes where you see where you're like, wait a minute, you could do this a lot smarter if you wanted to. But you've decided to do it fun. Yeah. Because uh, there are times where he's just like, he is hitting Jeremy Stevens and pivoting off. And it's just like, he is not, Jeremy Stevens is not even facing where the zone, the 
vicinity of where Clay Collard is anymore. And by the time he turns around, Clay Collard going to kick you in the head, punch you, duck under one of your punches, and spin off again. And you're going to find yourself right back in the same. And you're like, man, you could probably go in there and fight a guy like Jeremy Stevens and not really get touched. And instead... You go in there and you have a a goddamn slobber knocker in which at one point you just sort of pick him up, throw him down and walk away disdainfully. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. There were some, there were some great moments in this fight. You were, uh, you were astounded a few minutes ago when I told you Jessica Andrade is is 30 years old. Uh, how about Clay Collard checking in at 29? Oh no, nope, no, I don't, nope. I do not believe it. That's a young man out there. He basically mm-hmm. went out and and out heaven the little heathen in this fight uh, <laughs> from start to finish. Although I will say my favorite part in this entire fight was in the second round when Clay Collard shoots in for a takedown and takes him down. The look on Jeremy Stevens's face. He practically does a gym from the office or <laughs> he like looks at the camera and is like, and, you know, might as well just zoom in on his face just being like, oh, really? You're going to take me down now? I love it. I love everything about it. Uh, I do have a beef, though, here. With Is it with fight. the smart cage? Please well, you know, the we, smart cage. We have long-standing beef with the smart cage, and frankly, all of the graphics that the PFL puts up on the screen during the fight. Like, they have a they have a good product out there, man. They got one of the best broadcast teams in MMA. Uh, they're starting to put together some good fights. You don't need to cover the whole thing with a bunch of weird graphics so I can no. barely even see it. Like that's, You do not. Don't need to do that, but that's not even my beef. That's not even the beef where I'm going with this. My beef is, okay. did you watch this live? No. Where did you well, find I, it? I checked, I where, checked in on a little bit of it as it was going on, but... Uh, where? How'd you watch this? Where'd you find uh, it? I, I, well, mainly the internet. Honestly, I... You know what? I've had a problem with ESPN Plus lately. This uh, is my bone to pick, Ben. I could not find this fight on my ESPN Plus. I could not find this fight on the PFL website. I could not find this fight on the PFL YouTube channel. You know how I watched it? Streaming site. Are you saying that when you go to actually open up the ESPN Plus app, you could not find it anywhere? I could not find it. I searched for it. Hmm. Could Did not come up. I found, I found a highlight, a fight highlight on the ESPN Plus. I watched this fight. On an illegal streaming site. Clay so, Collard versus Jeremy Stevens. I watched it I, in three separate files for each round. Like I was out here fucking trying to steal a pay-per-view main event. Why are you hiding this shit, man? Like you had a good fight. The people want to talk about it. People want to watch it. Don't hide it from me. Don't make it so I got to go uh, find some Russian language website and try to stream it there. But put it on your damn website, PFL. Put it on your YouTube channel. Uh, first of all, as your legal counsel, I'm going to advise you to say no more about how you watched it. Uh, my beef with ESPN Plus is kind of like a general beef in that I find myself lately thinking, man, it would be awesome if ESPN Plus, you know, worked all the time. Like if it just, if you could just push the button for it and they just delivered the service that I pay for, oh man, that'd be so rad. I'd be so excited about that. And yet that is not what is happening. It's it's a fucking guessing game. Every time I go to fire it up to just be like, 
is it gonna is it gonna do the thing? Is he just gonna tell me to fuck off? Is it just gonna be like mm, you're not connected to the service? Or is it gonna act like it's gonna play a thing and then not play the thing? It's it's damn Russian roulette every single time with ESPN Plus, and that's my beef. Uh, but also, I would think that if you're if you're like basically if you're anybody not the UFC, you can afford exactly zero problems in people who want to watch your thing getting to the thing. Yeah. You can't you can't afford the, the tiniest little thing because it's a challenge already to get people who are not just like saying like, okay, somebody's managing, finding a way to show it to me, finding a way to figure out I'm the kind of person who might be interested in this and forcing it in front of my eyeballs. It's hard enough to get somebody to be like, there's a PFL on tonight, a weeknight here, like early in the evening. Let me go find it. There should not be a single fucking thing that stops that person from doing it because your product ain't that good that you can afford to have those people be like, oh man, let me load up three different Russian streaming sites. Well, and that's why a fight like Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens is so important because most people aren't going to watch it live. Most people are going to find out about it because people on the internets are saying, wow, Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens, potential fight of the year. That was awesome. And then they're going to go try to find it after the fact. And they're going to look on ESPN plus, and they're going to look on your website and they're going to look on your YouTube channel. And then they're going to let a Russian guy show it to him <laughs> just like I did. But nonetheless, if you want to watch a fight where two different versions of the same dude essentially try to kill each other, <laughs> try to track down Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens. It's it's worth it. And uh, that is a whole subgenre of MMA fight right there is two versions of the same dude try to kill each other. Yeah. Uh, we're going to mix in some Bellator here. Oh, no, before we do that, somebody tweeted us, tweeted at us uh, this weekend. I forget who it was, but they basically tweeted at us and asserted that PFL is the number two promotion now in the, in America that they have surpassed Bellator. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I can quite go that far. Like I said, I think they have a good product. I think they're doing some nice stuff over there, but I still think, I still think it's Bellator. I still think Bellator's got them. What do you think? Well, okay. The real question is what's your metric? Like what determines making you number two? Huggability. <laughs> I don't fucking know, man. I'm just... which, which, which promotion do you want to get a beer with? Yeah, yes, exactly. That's which promotion I'm going to vote for president is the one that okay. I would rather get a beer with. How about this? How about if I told you, you can have the UFC and one other fight promotion? Do you do you choose Bellator there? American fight promotion? Any fight promotion. You're going to choose KSW, aren't you? I mean, yeah, if I only get one. Like, I, I want to have it around. I want to have KSW for nights that I'm feeling f f a little, you know, froggy. Well, see, the big advantage to PFL should be that, hey, you're already signing up for ESPN Plus to watch the UFC, right? Like, you're already having to pay that money. Like, you got to. You're an MMA fan. There's no way around it. You, you have to have ESPN Plus. We're already there. We're already there, bro. No, no extra bells and whistles needed. Whereas for Bellator, it's like, mm, are you going to sign up for Showtime? Like, is watching the reruns of Gigolos that worth it? Like, I don't know. 
that's that should that's the, that should be the obstacle that makes all the difference. Like PFL yeah. really ha- having that going for you, you should be number two. Maybe my metric is that I kind of know what's happening in Bellator. Like that's my metric. Like I know when the Bellator shows are. I know that they're, you know, even though it snuck up on us a little bit, AJ McKee versus Pitbull, I know we're doing that rematch. I know we're going to have Cyborg fight. I know we got this uh, bantamweight tournament about to wrap up. I kind of know. Kind of know what's going on with Scotty Cox and the boys over there with Bellator. PFL, like I said, you throw it on there and tell me it's the start of the new season. And, oh, shit, Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens. I better circle back around on Sunday and try to find that. Maybe that's my metric. Well, okay. Fair enough. Plus, I would have a beer with Scotty Cokes. I bet he would take me out to a nice gastro pub over there in San Jose. <laughs> Bellator, though, do you, do you want to talk about Cyborg or do you want to talk about this stoppage in the Juliana Vasquez Liz Carmouche? Or I'm sorry, Velasquez uh, Liz Carmouche fight. Let's talk about the stoppage. Yeah, of course you do. Um, we we love <laughs> a controversy. We love a controversy here in the mixed martial arts, and uh, here you got one. Juliana Velasquez is is up. Uh, in the uh, in the final stages of this fight, championship fight against Liz Carmouche. She gets caught in a crucifix. And the next thing you know, you got Mike Beltron leaping in there like he's he's saving a puppy from a house fire. Yeah, diving on a grenade. Yeah, uh, a lot, lot, took a lot of heat. Mike Beltron took a lot of heat for this one. And I, I got to say, this would, did seem like a little bit of a knee-jerk stoppage. Okay, we got actually a a good question on this uh, that I think is is useful because um, I, I'm trying to find it here. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Somebody from the had Mission a, District Crow. Right yes, here. here it is. Yeah. Okay. I'm from I'm the nest it. of Liz Carmouche's legal team. Okay, go for it. From the nest of Liz Carmouche's legal team is important here. Hear us out. <laughs> See, right on behalf of client and the whole firm it seems how many fights have we seen stopped on a crucifix where someone's taken four or five unanswered pops to the dome is unable to defend themselves and no one cares maybe helped by shadow co-defendant and friend alima mcfarlane my client exploited a glaring hole in her opponent's game got top control and was raining blood and military hellfire upon her rival my client was in clear control and not letting her up what was your boy mike beltran to do let the poor woman get worked for the next 10 to 15 15 seconds before the bell? What happened to intelligently defending yourself? And this isn't, it's a title fight, let it go longer. The same gladiator bullshit we get when create a fighter whoever gets a similar beating and we then freak out. If the champion visibly stops moving while my client is thumping her in the face, hasn't she basically given up? And why the hell are people on Twitter getting mad when 99% of those fuckers weren't watching and the other 1% were illegally streaming the fight anyway? Perhaps you heard on the broadcast, by the way, that my client served her country? The defense rests its case. Now, this is actually, this makes some strong points. And yet, (laughs) I will recognize the strong points and I still say I don't love the stoppage. In part because you get to like a dominant sort of top grappling position there. And it enables you to land these blows that she, for the moment, cannot defend but the nature of getting that position and maintaining it means usually that the blows you're landing are not super hard. And so it's kind of like you're sacrificing your ability to really get enough separation to do serious damage for the sake of the control. And it's the control that you're using to just be like, 
just popping her over and over again to try to make the point to the ref like see what's happening here she's not she's she's not intelligently defending herself i'm not really hurting her super bad but she's also not doing anything so go ahead and stop it right now and you know roy nelson this was his whole jam and he even we even heard him describe like the psychology of it when he was on the ultimate fighter that ultimate fighter season with kimbo and he was like i just lock up that that crucifix and then start punching him in the face. And then I just start looking in the ref like, Hey Herb, are you seeing this? Are you seeing what I'm doing here? And put the pressure on the ref to stop it that way. And it feels a little bit like gaming the system because we're not stopping it because they're just taking so many unanswered blows and we're worried about their health or anything. We're stopping it because it looks bad for them to not be doing anything and for them to just be like getting punched over and over again in their undefended face and it it kind of feels like you're just you're working the rules a little bit in your favor and i think that when you take you combine that you combine that it's there's only like 15 10 seconds left in the round so that we could let her wait that one out and it's not going to do life altering damage to her we all know that and also it's a goddamn title fight yeah yeah, like and, you can't tell me if it was the UFC heavyweight title that we're dealing with that you get that same stoppage in that same situation. I just, I don't believe that you do. And we can say all this stuff like, oh, the ref shouldn't take into account time left in the round, or they shouldn't take into account the fact that it's a title fight. I mean, they take that stuff into account all the time, like the different experience levels of the fighters and and things like that, and and strengths that they know that the fighters have. I I don't think I, I think it's a when you combine all those factors. I think it starts to look like not a great stoppage. Yeah, I, I in some ways agree with uh, Casey Lydon, who I saw on Twitter saying that it was a girl fight stoppage, that you would not have gotten that same stoppage from a referee in a fight involving men, uh, which is too bad. And and let's let's uh, be clear that Mike Beltron is, is a good referee and normally yeah. does a great job. Uh, and everybody fucks up. It's just part of doing the job. Uh, but I do think... You, I don't think it's out of the 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 realm of of feasibility to tell the ref that they should know where you're at in the round because if you're in this situation and you as the referee I think can make a reasonable judgment call that uh, Juliana Velasquez is not going to die in this position it's not going to suffer any irreparable harm although maybe Mike Beltran saw something that we did not because the way he jumped in there certainly made it seem urgent but like. Yeah. And and again, with apologies, it is easy to do this in hindsight. It's easy for us to sit here on Monday afternoon and be like, oh, this is what this guy should have done. But like it se- would seem more reasonable to me with what, 13 seconds left in round number four to let this thing play out. And then if you are worried about the health of Velasquez, you could stop it between rounds yeah. before the fifth. But again, like that's me on Monday uh, basically Monday morning quarterback in this thing. And and I don't know what Mike Beltron saw in the cage, but but it seemed like a, a little bit of a premature stoppage to me. I will say that it's not a great idea if you do get stuck in a crucifix like that to just stop. Like, do something. Even if you can't free your arm, you can't uh, get out of it, do something, whatever you can, to show that you are still in this and you have not given up. Because yeah. I like I understand sort of the the impulse a little bit is to be like, fine, fuck you, hit me. It's not hurting. Like, go ahead. 
go ahead and, and, and hit me from this position. You can't really hurt me from here because you're just too busy trying to hold on to me. Uh, and like, you think you're making a point to the ref that way, as if like, like you're doing the gym from the office face while they are punching you in the face. And just so you're trying to be like, see, it doesn't matter. This is not important. But also what it could look like to them is that you have stopped moving and you're out or you've, you've quit that you, that you're no longer fighting back. And so in, if that's, one of the things that, uh, you know, if you're, you're a coach in the corner there, one of the things that we're talking about is whatever you do, if you get in that position, don't stop. Don't yeah. stop moving. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be shouting, I'm okay, Mike, over and yeah. over again for the next don't 13 you, seconds. Don't you stay the fuck away from here, Mike. Don't you dare get in here. Everybody here is fine. Let us work it out, Mike. Like she's going to game the system in that way. You need to be gaming it back some way to show like, nope, this is not a fight ending situation. Uh, Bellator did back-to-back events out there at the Neil Blaisdell in uh, Hawaii this weekend, man. And the second night, of course, is uh, Chris Cyborg main eventing against Arlene Blenko, a uh, a rematch from just a couple fights ago in Bellator. Cyborg wins this one by unanimous decision. Uh, had a point deducted at one point for an illegal knee, but nonetheless got it done in somewhat overwhelming fashion in the eyes of the judges. Are we at a point of diminishing returns now for Bellator with Cyborg if we are out here booking her these rematches against uh, people like Arlene Blenko, who uh, Cyborg just defeated in October of 2020 in Bellator? Well, I mean, give Bellator credit. They made a real effort to sign Kayla Harrison. Yeah, that's true. They tried. They tried to go out there and get something for Cyborg to do. Uh, It didn't work out, but... They, from the sound of it, they really, really made an effort. And so I can't blame them there. Um, it still works to the extent that if you tell me Cyborg's on the card, I, I perk up a little bit. I pay a little bit more attention. So that works. Also, goes. It, it's worth saying, uh, whenever Chris Cyborg has a fight coming up, I get an email from Chris Cyborg. Oh, I love getting emails from Chris Cyborg. I, I get several every emails. Every time it happens, every time it happens, I have the exact same thought. Oh, I got an email from Chris Cyborg, I think, for one split second before I remember. Oh, yeah, I get these emails frequently, and they always say that they're from Cyborg. But it doesn't matter. It's still smart. It's still a smart thing for her to do, like, as just, like, a PR thing. Like, she's doing her own promotion, and she'll, like... Like one of the emails that I got uh, last week was, uh, here's a link to a video of Chris's last day of sparring before the fight. Chad, why doesn't everybody do this shit? Yeah. Why doesn't everybody take a little bit more of a proactive approach? And like, it's not hard to to gather together a list of MMA media people's emails. You don't need to wait for the promoter to do it for you. Fucking email them. Email them some shit. At the very least, it reminds them that you are fighting this weekend, and that is more than half the battle uh, with such a busy slate of, of fight action, but also gives you the chance to stand out and draw attention to the things you would like to draw attention to. And instead of having it come from like some PR uh, email address, just have it, like Rob Font should be fucking emailing me from a address where it shows up as Rob Font. That I'll just be like, Rob Font sent me an email. That's enough to get me to open it. Yeah. It's enough to get me to give you a chance. And then to, you can tell me what you want to tell me. And it can't hurt, man. It can't hurt as long as you're just, I mean, as long as it's not like I'm opening it up and it's your newsletter about eugenics or something. Like, it's a good idea. And I every time I get those emails from Chris Cyborg, I'm like, why aren't more people doing this? 
I want to get an email that includes Rob Font's thoughts on the Batman. I want to open it. And Hell like, yeah. And it'd just be like, hey, well, now that the Batman is on HBO Max, I, I went ahead and watched it over the weekend. And here are my See, thoughts. Signed, Rob Fun. 100%. 100%. Like, uh, all these other people going to try to get me to read their reviews of the Batman, whatever, you know, and I'm not that interested. Rob Font emails me and says, like, all right, so I, I got around to watching the Batman uh, during my weight cut this week. Here's some thoughts. Uh, by the way, you know, I was severely dehydrated. So if you disagree with anything, chalk it up to that. And I'd be like, fuck you, yeah, Rob Font. This is awesome. Also, uh, I know we're over an hour now, so I, we kind of did a, a default. Are you fucking kidding me? I got to do a default just saying stuff. Okay. Because you know, Bellator goes over here, does two nights in Hawaii, as they'll do. I mean, you you could take that long flight over there. You might as well get two events out of it. I, I don't blame you there. Also, a reminder to everyone, the reason why the UFC won't go to Hawaii is because it wants Hawaii to pay them just to go there. And Hawaii is like... Fuck you, dude. We are Hawaii. We don't need a tourism budget to sell people on tourism. We're Hawaii. People come here because it is a paradise on earth. They know that about it. We don't need to spend money selling people on that idea. We especially don't need to spend money bringing a UFC event here so people will be like, oh, it turns out there's nice stuff to do in Hawaii. Did you know that? I don't. This, Hawaii looks like a nice place. It's not Abu Dhabi. Where you need to draw attention to your slide and the the water slide that's the, where you can come out the mouth of the cobra or you have Ferrari World or whatever. Like Abu Dhabi needs to tell you, hey, there's shit to do out here, man. Whatever you heard, it's it's fun out here. You should come. Hawaii doesn't need to do that, and so that's why the UFC doesn't go there. Bellator still goes there, and it is like goddamn rule. It seems the way you'll know when there's a Bellator event in Hawaii is like you click the the video to start the fight plan. And the ring announcer is wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a lei. And I'm just saying, Chad, the UFC can no longer justify denying us the opportunity to see what kind of outfit Bruce Buffer would come up with in fucking Hawaii, man. Because you know Bruce Buffer is not just going to roll up in there wearing some Hawaiian shirt he bought at the hotel gift shop. He's not coming up in there with just some Tommy Bahama bullshit. Bruce Buffer... He's gonna do something. He's gonna do. Yeah. He's gonna do the whatever the tuxedo version of a Hawaiian shirt is. He is gonna figure it out, and he's probably gonna change two or three times throughout the evening. But damn it, we deserve to see what that looks like. I'm just saying. Yeah, uh, Bruce Buffer probably has a room in his house devoted to when the glorious day comes. The UFC head so there's a there's a thing that says a break glass in the event of a UFC Hawaii event. Yeah, emergency stylist on retainer by Bruce Buffer for when the UFC heads out there to Hawaii. Uh, I guess this week I'm just saying we're not getting out of here without talking about Mike Jackson and whether (laughs) or not he has the weirdest career in UFC history. Uh, Went out there and defeated Dean Barry by DQ over the weekend in their welterweight fight. Was an unbelievable underdog in this fight uh got kicked got spin kicked right in the groin early on and then uh got one of those eye gouges where they show with where someone does a still picture and puts it on twitter yeah. like that's how Wait. bad it's when that's when you know you got a bad eye gouge and when, when someone is like oh i'm screenshotting this motherfucker <laughs> you also though know you got a bad groin kick especially in the the, the quiet empty arena where we can hear him being like that motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> 
He's just he just says out loud at one point, spinning kick to the balls, man. Spinning kick to the groin or whatever. He says, that motherfucker, he got me. And you're just like, yes. This is why we have the empty arena for shit like this, man. So here is, up to this point, Mike Jackson's UFC career. He lost to Mickey Gall in 2016 via rear naked choke. I believe he was the guy that the UFC brought in to lose to Mickey Gall in... in yeah, Mickey Gall's that, first UFC fight, or that was the winner gets CM Punk fight. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and that then, was like uh, how we were doing that. Mike Jackson goes on to get CM Punk uh, after none, Mickey Gall beat the shit right, out of him. Yeah, nonetheless, he wins that fight over CM Punk, and it is laser later overturned, uh, turned into a no, a no contest because Mike Jackson tested positive for marijuana. Also, we were reminded by a patron of the podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, the promo that Dana White cut, not on losing fighter CM Punk, but on nope. winning fighter Mike Jackson mm-hmm. after that fight, where I believe he called him a fucking idiot and <laughs> said that he didn't know what he did for a living before he started fighting, but he should go back to it because that's how lousy he was. And then the UFC he brings him he back. He won the fight. <laughs> he was the winning fighter. The UFC brings him back over the weekend to fight Dean Barry. And again, uh, Jackson was a huge underdog in this fight. So they basically brought him in to lose yeah. to Dean Barry. And he ends up winning via DQ, via eye gouging. And uh, this is this is an almost peerlessly weird UFC run. Mm-hmm. For a guy who seems like a smart, nice guy in, in, uh, in Mike Jackson and a guy who has kind of worked as an MMA journalist and been around the scene a little bit, uh, a guy who's kind of a known commodity, very... Very strange three-run fight in the UFC. And now uh, he's 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 on the heels of a win. He's actually on the heels of two straight wins here. Well, I mean, if you did the... I mean, I, I say we absolutely do count the the one over CM Punk as a win. Because we the CME's position is that we do not recognize your no contest due to marijuana. Um, but... And just just to make sure that we all get to MMA the shit out of things on this one. So you go and you get disqualified for three fouls, basically, in less than one full round. Like, you know, two groin kicks, one the really bad spinning heel kick to the groin, uh, and one this like, let me get my fingers all up in your fucking eyes. And then... What does Dean Barry have to say about it afterwards? To be honest with you, I thought he took the easy way out there. Didn't want to stay. Didn't want to continue fighting. Even when I kicked him low, he was talking on the ground to me for ages. Like, if you get hit in the nuts, you can't be talking like that. Same with the eye poke. Straight after the ref called the fight off, he was fine. Both eyes opened perfectly. He said he can't open his eyes. (sighs) Only in MMA can you commit three fouls. And less than a round, get your ass disqualified and be like, but it's really his fault. Yeah, it's always the guy who got fouled's fault. He's always in mm-hmm. the wrong. Didn't want to fight. He wanted out of there. That's what it was. How many fouls would you have to commit before you'd be like, you know what? My bad, B. <laughs> I deserve that it, one's actually. on me. <laughs> that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Reminder, we will be over at the Patreon all week this week of the Wednesday live chat. Thursday doing the damn thing. Friday power hour. We got a patronage tier for every budget. Check us out over there. Patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, thanks for listening. We are done. We are through. We are out. 
So that is also uh, in the Dundasso playbook, I assume, is that after you do all this shit, in the event you do just get disqualified, Dundasso says, hey, he didn't want to fight. He wanted out of there. Okay. He just pulled the easy way. The, uh, the data white playbook and rubber cemented it into the Dundasso. guy didn't want to fight. Yep. You fucking idiot should go back to whatever he did. He said, okay, we need a fighter. While wiping his eye glue.